Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter number 26 tonight, Matthew 26, and tonight we're going to begin a two-part lesson on the Lord's Supper, or communion, and we're going to consider this in two sections. Tonight we will be looking at the Lord's Supper considered theologically, considered doctrinally. What are the theological teachings concerning the Lord's Supper, and Next session, we will look at the Lord's Supper considered practically. Once we understand what it is, we will then consider how it is to be practiced. And per the email that I sent out, I hope everyone received it. And I asked yesterday if you would please bring your 1833 Particular Baptist Confession of Faith along with, um, along with your, your copy of God's Word because in that confession... Uh, on on page 12, article 15 of Baptism and the Lord's Supper, there's a splendid little statement there that summarizes what we believe the Scriptures teach concerning the Lord's Supper. Uh, and as I'm looking at, I see just about everyone has it, which is phenomenal, so that makes my work a little bit easier. Um, and I'm going to be leaning upon the way that the confession renders its explanation of the Lord's Supper tonight as we look at this. But first, I do want to read to you, as, we, as you read along with me, from Matthew 26, as Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, the night in which he was betrayed. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 26. The Bible says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it, and brake it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God gave to the nation of Israel ceremonial laws. Along with moral law and civil law, he also gave ceremonial laws. And these ceremonial laws were to be physical manifestations of spiritual truths. They were object lessons, if you will. For example, there was nothing inherently righteous about the act of circumcision. Rather, it was to be a visible symbol of membership in God's covenant community. There's nothing inherently sinful about wearing a garment made of mixed fibers, but that was to be a visible picture uh, teaching God's people that they should be separate from the world. And Israel had this very elaborate ceremonial system as part of the Old Testament administration because the Old Testament administration was not as clear as the New Testament administration and it relied heavily on types and shadows and pictures that pointed to deeper realities. Well, now we are in the New Covenant. We are in the New Testament. And some mistakenly think that there are no ceremonial laws in the New Testament. And it is true that we do not have the same ceremonial laws, but we do indeed have ceremonial laws. 
Jesus said himself in Matthew 5, Think not that I came to abolish the law, came not to abolish, but to fulfill. So the question we must then ask, with the coming of the New Testament, how were the ceremonial laws fulfilled? And when we study the scriptures, we find that the answer to that question, they were fulfilled in the inauguration of the ordinances that Jesus gave to the church. Those are our ceremonial laws in the New Testament. With the new administration, we have new laws. And for new covenant Christians, the ceremonial laws are the ordinances of the church, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. They are physical acts that teach and convey spiritual truths. And just as the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, these two ordinances not only display spiritual realities, but they communicate and administer the grace of God unto us. One of the ceremonies of the Old Testament was the Passover feast. In Exodus 12, we have instructions given for the observance of this ceremony, and we find that it was to be a commemoration of God's delivering the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage as he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And it signified that God had bestowed his grace upon them in liberating them from slavery and giving them entrance into the promised land. And each year, each year, Israel was to keep the Passover feast. They were to observe this feast each year. And this feast was a memorial of God's grace to them in the past, but also it was a recommitment of their covenantal relationship to God. They received God's blessing when they kept this feast, as well as the other ceremonial laws. Well, with the inauguration of the new covenant, we find that on the the same day in which Israel observed the Passover, the Lord fulfilled that Passover law and inaugurated the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper was given to commemorate an even greater act of redemption than the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And it signifies an even greater inheritance than merely the physical land of Canaan. The Lord's Supper was instituted to proclaim the substitutionary death of Christ and the blessings that he bestows upon his people. And it serves for us not only as a memorial, but also as a means by which we receive the grace that is symbolized in the supper. So, with that said, what does our confession say? Now, we do not use confessions because we think that they are on par with Scripture. Certainly they are not inspired in any way, shape, or form. But we do use confessions because we believe that they are an accurate summary of what the Bible teaches on all of the issues that it covers. And it is certainly a synopsis of what Baptists have believed throughout the centuries. And so Article 15 of the 1833 Particular Baptist Confession of Faith, which is the confession of faith that we use for membership at this church, about halfway down in that paragraph, you'll see the sentence on page 12 that that begins with, We likewise believe that. Everyone tracking with me there, let's... Read that to you, that little uh, paragraph. It's three sentences. It says, We likewise believe that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience in which the members of the church, by the sacred use of bread and wine, are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ. It is preceded always by solemn self-examination, 
worthy partakers of the Lord's Supper, do not corporally, but spiritually, feed upon the benefits of Christ's death as a means of God's grace unto them. Now, that is a jam-packed group of three sentences, and there is a lot in there. There's a lot in there speaking theologically and a lot in there speaking practically, so we're going to break this down sentence by sentence, and tonight we'll consider it uh, theologically, and next time we'll consider it practically. So, there's two words that I want you to note in the first sentence. We likewise believe that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience in which the members of the church, by the sacred use of bread and wine, are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ. Two words to note here, symbolic and commemorate. Symbolic and commemorate. Now obviously, in Matthew 26, our Lord was using figurative language when he said, when he lifted up the bread and he said, this is my body, and he lifted up the wine and he said, this is my blood. He could not have been speaking literally for the plain reason that he was present with him, with them. How could, how could he be lifting up the bread that was literally his body when his literal body was right before them? So we know that he was speaking literally. Well, right out of the gate, I'm not going to spend any time explaining, but let me just say that, that this repudiates both the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which teaches that uh, when the priest blesses the bread and the wine, that it literally transforms into the body and blood of Christ. Well, that is clearly unbiblical. It's, it's, it's more than unbiblical. It's idolatry. It's one of the most blasphemous institutions that man has ever devised, if you really follow it to its logical conclusion, because in the Catholic Mass, they are re-sacrificing Jesus Christ every time they observe the Mass. More could be said about that, but... Matthew 26 repudiates such a teaching, but it also repudiates the Lutheran doctrine of consubstantiation, which teaches that the bread and the wine, it remains literally bread and wine, but it also becomes literally the body and blood of Christ. So it, it is both bread and wine and the body and blood of Christ. Well, neither one of these are a possibility when we take an honest, accurate look at Matthew 26. So then we understand Jesus to be saying that the bread and the wine are to symbolize and commemorate his brutal and bloody death on Calvary's cross. And this is foremost what we must understand about the Lord's Supper. It is a memorial. It is a commemoration. And as we partake of the supper, we are to meditate upon what our Lord did for us as his body was broken and his blood was shed and his life was given for ours. As we take the bread, we, we think of his body hanging upon a tree, bruised and beaten, smitten, spat on, pierced with a crown of thorns, whipped with a cat of nine tails, his, his flesh ripped from his bones, the agony and the anguish and the pain and the suffering, the brutality that he suffered. We think of that when we consider his body as it were a loaf of bread broken for us. And as we take of the wine, we think of his blood, his sinless blood, the blood that had to be shed for the remission of sins, the blood that flowed down that rugged cross as he gave up the ghost, the blood that symbolized the atonement of sin that was to be made. 
the blood that satisfied and satiated the wrath of God on our behalf. We not only think about the suffering that Jesus underwent by the hands of men, but we must also remember that it was not just under the hands of men that he suffered, but he suffered under the wrath of God. The Father was pleased to pour out his wrath upon his Son in our stead. And as we think of the Lord's Supper, we must never forget that it is first and foremost about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for his people. So we likewise believe that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience which the members of the church, by the sacred use of bread and wine, are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ. Okay, that's sentence number one. Then it goes on to say, it is preceded always by solemn self-examination. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't believe you could talk about the Lord's Supper without referencing 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, and look at verse 26. Paul here speaking about how the church is to observe this ordinance. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, that's what we want to focus in on, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Okay. So, secondly, we understand that the Lord's Supper is preceded always by solemn self-examination. There must be a self-examination because the Lord's Supper is a time of communion. It's a time of communion. Some of you probably only know it uh, referred to as communion. Um, where, do, where does the Lord's Supper get, get the name communion? Why do we call it communion? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, it talks about the Lord's Supper as being a communion of Churches, one with another, uh, individuals, one with another, and the church and Christ. It is a time of communion, a time of fellowship. The church communes with one another as one body, but also that one body communes with Christ. The Lord's Supper is a time in which Christ is especially present, is especially in our midst. And there is a twofold commitment being made as we renew our commitment to Christ and we renew our commitment with one another. So when there is unrepentant and unresolved sin between church members, it would be contradictory for them to partake of the Lord's Supper together. Because what we are doing, we are symbolizing we are one body. We have unity. We have harmony. We, we, we have this spiritual connection, this relationship, one with another. But if I am harboring resentment towards my brother because of a sin he has committed against me and it has not been made right, I should not partake of the Lord's Supper with him. And I have even heard stories of communion services in which a member of the church interrupted the service so that he could get up 
and go and, and, and sit next to a brother that he had offended and confess his sin and, and ask for forgiveness before he partook of the elements. And I believe that's exactly what the Bible would have us to do, what God would have us to do. Because the Lord sees through our hypocrisy when we partake of the Lord's Supper next to someone who we have wronged or they have wronged us. But there is some rift, there's a sinful hindrance that we have not dealt with. Because the Lord's Supper is a picture of our unity in Christ. But there's another communion that takes place. And that is a communion between the church as a whole and Christ as its head. And we'll speak more to this point next time as we consider how the Lord's Supper is to be practically observed. But we understand that just as it would be contradictory for church members to partake together when there is a hindrance in their communion, so too is it contradictory for anyone to partake when there is a hindrance in his or her communion with Christ. Especially, brothers and sisters, if there is no communion at all with Christ. This self-examination is a time for you to search your heart and ensure that you truly know Christ and that your Christian life, though not perfect, is indeed producing the fruit that is consistent with someone who has experienced saving grace. In other words, the Lord's Supper is not for unbelievers. Lastly, there is also an examination that must be done by the church as the administrator of the ordinances. And this, perhaps, is one of the areas that has very much fallen by the wayside in our day and age. That the church is responsible for who she administers the ordinances to. That's true of baptism, and it's also true of the Lord's Supper. Churches will give an account to God for who they baptize and who they invite to commune at Christ's table. If a church only cares about numbers and growth, and so they baptize anyone who is willing, regardless of whether or not they have a credible profession of faith, they will bring down the chastening hand of God upon them. And the same is true of the Lord's Supper. If a church is administering the elements with no regard for the biblical prerequisites, they will incur the judgment of God. The church should as much as is possible, ensure that they are administering the ordinances to only those whom the Bible says are fit to partake of them. Christ commissioned his ordinances to his church, and the church has no authority to invite anyone to the table whom the Lord has not invited to his table. Now, I'm not saying these things because I think that the church is some elite club that you must enter an initiation and a, a pledge and a uh, a week of hazing and uh, all this, that, and the other to be able to be a part of the body. I, I don't believe we should make church membership or baptism or the Lord's Supper any more difficult than the Lord has made it. But I also don't believe we should make it any easier than the Lord has made it. And it is quite honestly one of my least favorite things to do as a pastor is to look at someone and to say, no, I am not going to baptize you. <clears throat> Because though you might have a desire, uh, though you might, though you might uh, have made your decision, as it were, 
if there is not a consensus in the church and there's not a, a, a unity there and there's not the biblical evidence that the Bible describes one has, then we have no right to administer those ordinances. And much of our next session will deal with particularly who is invited to partake, so I'm not going to get into that anymore, but if, if you do have questions, I encourage you to ask me. I'll be more than happy to speak with anyone concerning those things. But our confession says that, that the Lord's Supper is to be preceded always by a solemn self-examination. And we want, as we observe it, to allow time for that to occur. And then the last sentence. The last sentence. Worthy partakers of the Lord's Supper do not corporally, but spiritually, feed upon the benefits of Christ's death as a means of God's grace unto them. Now, this is quite possibly the most difficult of those sentences. It, especially in our modern context, this might be the one that really causes us to scratch our heads, but I assure you it's really not that hard to understand. Let's, let's break it down. What does this mean? Well, you first need to understand that the two major views of the Lord's Supper in Protestant and Baptist Christianity. Okay, we, We've touched on the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, but amongst the Protestants and amongst the Baptists, there are, are primarily two major views of the Lord's Supper. The first view is what we would call the ornamental view, or the memorial view. Ornaments, what are ornaments? Ornaments are something that is purely decoration. There's no, there's no depth or meaning to it. It's just decoration. It's just there for looks. And there's the ornamental or memorial view, which is perhaps the, the majority view in our day. It's certainly what uh, most Baptist churches today believe. Um, and it teaches that the ordinances are purely memorials. They are purely symbols. They are purely pictures of God's grace. But they are not a means in any way, shape, or form by which His grace is given to His people. So in other words, this view would say when we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, there's nothing really happening there. It's just something we do to demonstrate what has already happened. It's just a picture that points back to something that has occurred, but there's nothing really happening there. Okay, That's the ornamental view, the memorial view. But then there is the instrumental or the sacramental view. Instrumental or sacramental view. Uh, as opposed to ornamental, an instrument is what? An instrument is a tool by which something is accomplished. So uh, if, if I have a, a, a screwdriver, a screwdriver is an instrument. It's a tool. And I, let's say I'm going to screw a, uh, screw a screw into a hole. Well, who is screwing the screw into the hole? Who is causing it to happen? Well, I am, right? But I'm using a tool. I'm using an instrument. Okay, so this view, which is the predominant position of particular Baptists, it's the predominant position of Baptists throughout history, and it's without a doubt the predominant view in the Reformed tradition. This view also believes that the Lord's Supper is a memorial. It also believes that it is a symbol. But that's not all that it is. That's not all that it is. There is something going on when we participate in the Lord's Supper. There's something going on in communion. It is a symbol that really and truly administers God's grace to his people through faith. Okay, through faith. So, in other words, just as that screwdriver has no power in and of itself to screw in that screw unless there is an efficacious mover who picks it up and uses it, the ornaments 
the, the ordinances, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, have no inherent power contained in themselves to give grace to anyone unless there is an efficacious God who administers that grace through those ordinances. So, you've heard me teach on the means of grace in the past, uh, and, and we have given simple examples of those, and most Christians, whether they realize it or not, do believe in some sort of ornamental view uh, or, or instrumental view when it comes to the means of grace because most Christians will readily admit that if they were to close their Bibles and never read them for a month or two, that their spiritual life would be in dismay. And if they were to cease their prayers and not pray at all for a month or two, their communion with God would be seriously hindered. And if you realize that God uses things such as the scriptures and church attendance and prayers to administer his grace to you and bless you and keep you and grow you, then, brothers and sisters, you believe in instruments. You believe in God giving his grace instrumentally through faith. And this is why you will sometimes hear the ordinances called sacraments. You'll hear baptism and the Lord's Supper referred to as sacraments. Now, I am cautious when I use the term sacraments um, because obviously... It, that's a word that is a buzzword in Catholic doctrine. I believe in the seven sacraments. And of course, we, we would not agree with their definition of a sacrament, nor would we see seven of them. Uh, but at the end of the day, I really don't have much of a problem with the word sacrament. And in the right context, if I, if I know that who I'm speaking to knows what I mean, I have no problem saying that baptism and the Lord's Supper are indeed sacraments. So, what do we mean when we say that God's grace is given through the Lord's Supper. Well, first, let me, let me emphasize again what we don't mean. What we don't mean. We don't mean that the Lord's Supper is effectual in our salvation apart from faith. We don't mean that. I don't believe if someone is, if someone is lost and unconverted and does not know Jesus Christ, I don't think he needs to take the Lord's Supper in order to earn his salvation. I don't believe that, the, that one must partake of the Lord's Supper as a step to be converted or be saved. Don't believe that at all. Uh, the Church of Christ uh, denomination or group or cult or whatever you want to call them, they will tell you, yes, faith in Christ is absolutely essential for salvation and you must believe, but you must also, equally as important, you must be baptized. Now, we believe that God's grace is communicated through baptism, but that which is efficacious for salvation does not depend upon the ordinances in any way, shape, or form. We are saved by Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing, minus nothing. Amen. So we don't, we don't mean that the Lord's Supper inherently contains the grace of God as if there is something mystical or supernatural about the elements. I don't believe that at all. Rather, the Lord's Supper is one of the means that God uses to give His grace to His people. The grace is from God, not from the Supper. The grace is from God, not from the supper. And it is received through faith, spiritually, not through physically partaking of the elements. Okay? When you read your Bible, what is it that actually grows your faith when you read? Is it intellectually processing black words on white paper? Or is it spiritually meditating upon the truths contained in them? Does that make sense? 
So it's, it's not about... Uh, because if it were about the physical elements, then uh, I guess the, the larger of a crumble you cut from the loaf and the, the larger of a thimble you get, the more grace you receive, right? If it's the physical elements, but it's not the physical elements. It's receiving what that meal symbolizes and communicates through faith. Through faith. Notice the language of our confession. It says, we do not receive God's grace corporally, meaning physically, apart from faith. In other words, an unbeliever could eat as much bread and drink as much wine as he pleases, and he would never receive the grace of God because he does not have faith. One brother put it this way. He said, faith was the, is the very first gift that God gives a person, and it is, the, it is the hands to receive all of the other gifts. So God first gives you hands by which you receive all the other gifts. Likewise, an unbeliever could read the Bible cover to cover and it would do him no good because he is a natural man and cannot perceive the things of the Spirit of God. Rather, we receive God's grace not through a physical feast, but through a spiritual feast as we feed upon the benefits of Christ's death. So, as it says, we feed upon the benefits of Christ's death. Well, what does, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, you must understand that the Lord's Supper is a visible word. Is a visible word. Uh, all of God's grace comes directly from God, and it is chiefly communicated through His gospel. But that gospel is then given to us through various forms, through the preached word, through the written word, through the visible word, and that is what the Lord's Supper is. It is a visible word. Look at 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26. The Bible says, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, now now pay attention, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. What does it mean to show the Lord's death? To proclaim his death, to preach his death, to symbolize his death, to give a picture of his death, to demonstrate his death, to portray his death, to communicate his death. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are preaching the gospel. We're preaching the gospel. Christ is present at the supper, not in the supper. And Christ speaks to us of the past, of the present, and of the future. The Lord's Supper calls our attention back to the cross 2,000 years ago as we ponder our Savior dying on Calvary's hill, giving his life for us. But the Lord's Supper also speaks to us of our present union with Christ, and it consecrates our heart and calls us to a deeper fellowship with him. But the Lord's Supper also points forward to the day when this union shall be fully and physically realized in glory. All of this is communicated to us in the Lord's Supper. And as we feed on the bread and wine with our mouth, we feed on Christ by faith. We grow in our trust and in our dependence upon Him. And our hearts are more and more consecrated unto Him. And the Lord's Supper is a time in which God sanctifies us and deepens our spiritual union with Christ. Turn back to chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We see this idea, This perhaps this chapter is the greatest portion of Scripture to, to teach the the truth that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and just verse 16. Notice how the apostle speaks. 
He says, the cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread, which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Notice he calls it the cup of blessing. What does that mean? That means there is a blessing in the ordinance. There's a blessing in the sacrament. And you get it when you partake by faith, but you miss it when you don't. See, if the Lord's Supper is purely a memorial, if it's nothing more than a picture, then a church member who abstains, who is unfaithful, who does not attend, they're not really missing out on anything. But if the Lord's Supper is a time in which Christ has ordained to bless his people, and they are unfaithful and do not attend. They miss the blessing that Christ has purposed for them. So when believers partake in faith, God uses the supper as a vehicle, as a delivery system, to administer soul-changing grace and help from Christ. And there is something vertical happening in addition to something horizontal happening. By God's grace, we receive that grace through the supper when we partake with faith. Now, let me conclude with a caution here. Consider this point, uh, this point of, of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace, feasting on the benefits of Christ's death, as a, as a counterpoint to that of the solemn self-examination. It balances it out because there are two ditches that we can fall into here. Okay? See, some Christians have the wrong idea that if they have recently sinned, perhaps in some egregious way, that they cannot partake of the Lord's Supper for a period of time, even if they have repented. See, you come to the Lord's Supper, and you see the elements, and the pastor uh, is, is conducting the service, and he says something to the effect of, Okay, now we're going to take a moment to examine our hearts before the Lord. And as you bow to pray, you you remember that awful thing you did Wednesday. And so you say, well, I better not partake because my conscience is still guilty. Even if you've repented. Well, there's two things that need to be said about this. First, understand that the purpose of self-examination is to search out unrepentant sins. It is not a time to grade yourself to see if you've been good enough to come to the table. That's not how God works. That's not how God gives grace. The means of grace are not a reward for good people. They are gracious gifts to sinful people. So if you are if you are sitting there and you are examining your heart and you are thinking over your week or your month or really one of the blessings of the Lord's Supper is that it gives us a, a time to examine ourselves. And if, you, if you're a church like we do, we partake of it monthly, uh, it, gives you, it gives you that time each month to consider the last month of your life. And if you, if, if you are examining yourself and the Lord convicts you of something that you have never before considered, never before realized, and you suddenly... Uh, come to the realization that you have committed a sin, then yes, I repent of that sin. But if you are riddled with guilt about a sin that was committed, that you know you have repented of, that you know Christ has died for, that is not something that should keep you from the table. You must believe Christ when he says, go and sin no more. You must believe Christ when he says, thy sins be forgiven thee. 
And secondly, by not coming to the supper because of previous sins, you place yourself in a vicious cycle. Because the Lord's Supper is a gift that God has given you to help with your sanctification and your ongoing fight against sin, as are all the means of grace. Why does God give us the fellowship of the saints? Why does God give us the word? Why does God give us baptism in the Lord's Supper? Why does God give us preaching? To sanctify us, to grow us, to consecrate us. He doesn't give these things to us as rewards for good behavior. See, you need the grace that God gives in the Lord's Supper to win the victory over your sins. But yet you allow your sins to keep you from the table. It reminds me of something John Bunyan said about the Bible when he said, your sins will either keep you from this book or this book will keep you from your sins. And we've seen this time and time again. When a Christian backslides, when when they fall into a pattern of unfaithfulness, they do not come to the table out of guilt How many of you have ever met someone, you probably know someone now, who refuses to come to church because they feel like they need to clean themselves up first before they can come? But but they've put themselves in a vicious cycle. It's not just true the Lord's Supper. It happens with prayer. It happens with Bible reading. How many times do we come to our, our daily devotional time and we think, well, I, I can't read the Bible now. I, I, can't, I can't go to the Lord now in prayer. Part of it is understanding the difference between the voice of the devil and the voice of God. See, the voice of, of God will convict you and will sometimes speak to you far more harshly than the devil ever would. But the difference is this. Satan will tell you, you have sinned, You are dirty. You are filthy. You are unclean. How dare you enter the presence of God at a time like this? Stay away! But the voice of God will say, You are dirty. You are filthy. You are unclean. You are undone. But I have sent my son to die for you. Return to me. Come back to me. So, brothers and sisters, think of the Lord's Supper more as a time of receiving than as a time of giving. Think of it as more of a time of receiving. We, we come to the Lord's Supper to receive the grace of God. And, and who is the servant? Who is the true administrator? Well, the church, yes. Okay, the church administers the ordinance. But who is the true servant? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one serving. He is the one giving grace. It is not a reward for a good week. No, it is a gift for undeserving sinners who desperately need that grace. Furthermore, let me say this. You're a church member. You do not have the authority to excommunicate yourself or to inflict church discipline upon yourself. No one individual has the authority. The pastor does not have the authority to unilaterally impose church discipline. It is something that the church does as a whole. And the Bible commands you to come to the table and you do not have the right to abstain without biblical warrant. So saying, well, I I just don't feel like coming today to the table. Well, that doesn't cut it, brothers and sisters. The Bible commands you to. See, what you need is not to abstain. What you need is grace. The grace that is offered in the supper and in the other means. 
The supper is not for elite Christians. It is for sinners who need more grace. So instead of allowing your sins to keep you from the supper, deal with your sins, repent of your sins, and trust the work of Christ to atone for your sins. And then come to the table. Attend all of the other means of grace. Why? Because you need them. So this is a very brief overview. I'm sure on every one of these points we could spend an additional hour fleshing it all out. But this is the Lord's Supper considered doctrinally, considered theologically. Now we have some concept of what it is. Next time we meet together uh, to talk about this, this subject, we'll consider it practically. Now that we know the purpose, know what is taking place in that, we'll consider how do we practically observe it. So uh, let, us, let us close with prayer. And um, I strongly encourage you, if you have if you have any questions, please do ask them, uh, because as we, as we come to partake uh, of the Lord's Supper, it is very important that we understand what is, what is taking place. So let's pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us. Uh, we thank you for the gifts that you have given us. We thank you for the means of grace. I'm thankful that we have preaching. I'm thankful that we have a Bible to read. I'm thankful that we have baptism and the Lord's Supper and we have a church body and we have fellowship with other believers and we have these wonderful things that you have given us uh, to be able not only to celebrate what you have done but also to receive continual grace that we need day by day to live the Christian life. Help us Lord, uh, fill us, strengthen us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.